Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to GOLA. I'm Katie Parla, a Rome-based food and beverage writer, culinary guide, and cookbook author. And I'm Danielle Caligari, assistant professor of Italian at Dartmouth College and a certified specialist of wine. Hey, you. <laughs> hey. How are you, Katie? I'm wonderful, thanks asking. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing pretty well. I'm uh, so happy to be recording our new episodes with you in the studio in Rome. And we were just having a laugh because we were talking about one of the things that drives Italians crazy when it comes to the way to eat. And we're always talking about this in some capacity, obviously, on our podcast Gola about Italian food and beverage culture. But uh, while we're here in Rome and eating and drinking together, we always get to have some experiences where you and I are aware of the reason for which our decisions will drive Italians crazy, but others might not be so carefully and weirdly attuned to these rules for why certain things have to be eaten in certain ways. And yeah. uh, that prompted us to say, why don't we do an episode about it? Let's let's cover the rules. I mean, I get a ton of questions. I do a, a lot of one-on-one consulting. People, you know, schedule a Zoom, a Zoom call with me. We talk about what they want to eat, where they're going to go, and how their trip can be very delicious. And Almost universally, um, people are panicked that they're going to make a mistake. And I get it because certainly many of my first experiences in Italy um, were mistake driven. They were, I I humiliated myself. I still live in terror (laughs) of those moments. But one thing that we do have to acknowledge is that there are many rules here. All of those rules seemingly have many exceptions. You learn the rules by being shamed and not in a mean spirited way, but in a way like, oh, like you had to know that. Right. How could you not? How could you not? So, you know, unless you are completely immersed in this culture, you couldn't possibly have absorbed all of the subtle rules and regulations of how you conduct your daily life, breathe, eat, sleep, uh, combine things, look at people, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But we're here to talk about the rules and not just to make light of them, but also to illuminate the ways in which sometimes they're sort of based in cultural traditions or even misinterpretations. Um, and they're they're just always fun. And I want to preface this with, you know, an invitation to Italy. Yeah. Please come here. Come hang out. You can literally hang out with me and Danielle. <laughs> like we could be hired uh, to show you places, but generally come to Italy, and it never hurts wherever you're going to just like learn some of the local customs. And no, as I said before, if you make a mistake, you're gonna know. Oh yeah, they, they... no one is shy about telling you that you're fucking up. So 
Just know that you can do whatever you want. But if you want to like feel really good and safe all the time, <laughs> like coddled, that there's some things that can help you be aware of some of the of some of the things that that Italians really embrace as part of their customs, traditions and identity. Yeah. But where do we start? There's so many. Well, why don't we start at the beginning of the day? Because this mm. one comes up all the time. Yeah. So breakfast. For breakfast. What what can you have? What can't you have? And why? Well, I mean, breakfast is such an interesting topic because what we eat here is so deeply informed by 20th century industrial food practices and the sort of pervasive nature of certain foods that are factory made, especially cornetti, um, the whole sort of litany of breakfast pastries that you find in every single auto grill, almost every cafe and bar, um, really don't come into local use countrywide until the 1960s and 70s when many of the industrial brands, Malta, for example, owned the rest stops. A lot of these rest stops went bankrupt at the same time. The state consolidated under, under the auto grill category, which is now a privately owned company. But in this sort of process through the 60s and 70s, nationalized breakfast. So at breakfast, you may have a cornetto. <laughs> yeah. uh, you should have coffee. Yes. Tea is available. I have actually never once witnessed someone order tea for breakfast at an Italian bar. An Italian, that is. No, I haven't either. I, just, right. I simply stated it was yeah. no, available. It's, it's available, yeah. Um, but generally, it's a coffee beverage. Um, decaf is allowed. Decaf is allowed. And if you're going to have a coffee alternative, I would say you'll have an orzo at that point, right? Yes, yeah. exactly, which is a yeah. barley-based coffee substitute. Yes, yeah. Um, and looks kind of like coffee. Tastes kind of... Bernie <laughs> tastes brown. Yeah. It tastes brown and Bernie, and is absolutely everywhere yeah. uh, because of the the absence of uh, of caffeine. And, and people do enjoy this coffee ritual, often without the side effects of of caffeine. So the the cafe orzo comes into play there. What you may not have, mm-hmm. it's a long list at that point, but, is yeah. nearly everything else right. <laughs> except exactly. for. Uh, like fette biscottate or various sort of dried carby things made by Molino uh, Bianco company or its analogs. If you're at home, you're more likely to have something like that or yogurt. Yeah. What is uh, more rare, with the exception of uh, of some sort of deep country rural traditions, is to have eggs and sausage and bacon Although it's not totally unheard of, especially in rural Campania, for farmers to start their day with cheeses and cured meats um, and bread and even a little bit of wine, which is really what people, what many rural people were eating before the 20th century industrial breakfast took over. Yeah, I would say that's associated with people who are going out to have a day of real working with their hands and using their bodies and thus calories and and needing something more substantial. But the standard, if you're visiting Italy and you're in a city, which I think is most people's experiences, you are going to what an Italian calls a bar, which is not the same as a bar in English. It is what we would call a cafe, but doesn't quite exist in an American iteration. It's a place that has a large 
coffee machine to make espresso in the style that, as you point out, Katie, became common in that mid-20th century moment and after. And that is going to be accompanied by, uh, or that is going to offer, in addition to coffee drinks, a uh, usually a selection of spirits and uh, table wine. So that can be consumed sometimes even in the morning, again, by workers, uh, but is available for later in the day. And we'll get to that. And uh, then also a selection of pastries and probably then again, some light sandwiches or other things that you can have later. It's not uncommon for a tramezzino also, which is a white bread sandwich with a crust cut off, to be consumed in the place of a cornetto. Right. So those are your options. I mean, you go to breakfast here and you order a coffee drink and a small pastry. That's 99% of the time what everyone is getting. You could go in another direction, but if you do, you'll get some looks for sure. There's no question. I was recently at Casamanco. Mm-hmm. Um, I went for breakfast. I don't usually eat breakfast, but I made a big old exception. And I like to have yogurt if I do have breakfast. I went there and I said, do you have any yogurt? And they're like, we have pastry. It's breakfast, dummy. Right. So that's yeah. even 20 years in, I'm still yeah. making a fool of myself, <laughs> asking for dairy products where there where there shouldn't be any. Right. So the big, but possibly the most important rule that you are immediately confronted with at breakfast, although you don't realize it yet because you haven't yet made the mistake, is that you can have a milky coffee drink in the morning. But later in the day, that's going to be a hard pass. And if you Depends. order... If you, on the whole, if you order a cappuccino, especially, after any other meal or or with any other meal, which, by the way, is a rule unto itself, you don't have coffee with your other meals of the day. It's for breakfast and that's it, or by itself. And you are not going to have, especially a cappuccino, later in the day and certainly not after a meal. And if you order it after a meal... In a touristed large urban center, they will give it to you. They will be sorry for you, but they will give it to you. Mm. And in some places, they really just won't make it. They'll offer you instead a cafe macchiato yeah. in some way. Yeah. I often um, I often get the question, uh, is it true that you don't drink a cappuccino after 11 a.m. in Italy? That is actually not true. There's no cutoff. It's more of like where in your daily food and beverage consumption, is it permissible? And exactly as you say, you can eat it with your breakfast or drink it with your breakfast, but you can't or shouldn't Mm -hmm. or won't be granted it (laughs) (laughs) after lunch or dinner. But I have lived in Rome for a really long time and I've lived in all different neighborhoods and I've gone to probably at this point hundreds of bars. And it's not uncommon in the afternoon to see people coming and get to get a little tiny pastry and a cappuccino. I see it all the time at 4 p.m. And there's no cappuccino police that comes in to intervene with these Romans to say, you're making everyone look bad by doing this <laughs> because we have a rule that 11 is the cutoff. So it's not the norm. Most people are just drinking espresso. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, use your use your judgment to determine when it's appropriate. Um, a, a cappuccino in the late afternoon is is sometimes very vocally deemed inappropriate in the South. But 
Yeah, I wouldn't like order one in Naples if you need right. one at four. But if you're in Rome, you're going to be just fine. Yeah, I think, you know, that brings us right back to where you started, which is to say these are rules, but then you'll see people breaking them. The problem being that if you're not Italian, they assume you're breaking the rules because you don't know them, as opposed to if you are, they assume that you are being your most Italian self by saying, I know the rules and this is me looking into your eyes and saying, I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) Feels right sometimes. (laughs) So you leave breakfast and you're making your way about the city during the day. And what might you have in between breakfast and lunch? And already this is getting into dicey territory because snacking is tricky as hell in Italian It it depends on where I am. If I'm in Naples or Palermo um, or Venice, like that's a snacking culture. That's where little bites of something savory are available everywhere. Um, But generally speaking, I'm not really snacking that much in Rome. Well, you know, if I'm out and it's, you know, I've got two tours back to back and I only have a a quick, you know, little little bit of time for a snack, I'll grab a a slice of pizza. Right. What I will not do with that pizza is sit on a bus and eat it. Oh, God, no. Um, I will not go on the metro and eat it. Absolutely not. I will not walk and eat it. Although I saw some clearly like... Definitely senators the other day, uh, yeah. walking and eating. But I think they don't have to follow any rules anyway. Again, yeah, I think that's a we're above the rules yeah. kind of situation. But yeah. your snack is something that's quick, right? But it doesn't mean you should be shoving it down your throat and then, you know, scampering off to your next appointment. It's more like, I got this little bite. I'm going to eat my soup, please, standing up. I'm going to eat my pizza standing up. And then once I dispose of the trash, and there are no rules about where you could throw this on the floor if you want. You could throw it on the ground, apparently. They're just based on what I've observed, I've observed. <laughs> um, especially if the trashes are overflowing oh, as they often are in the center of Rome. You just right, throw, it in yeah. the, throw it in the Tiber. Mm-hmm. That's how it's done. Um, I just. Uh, then once you have deposited your trash, then you may walk somewhere. Right. But, well, eating and, and walking is not a thing. No, you're not moving around. Even even walking and drinking isn't a thing. So uh, hard to con- do. It's <laughs> consuming and moving don't go together, according to Italians. And yeah, I think you know that's that's a place where we could point to a rule that is maybe feels a little bit dictatorial from an American mm-hmm. standpoint, but has a, comes from a good place. I mean, I agree with the idea that if you're eating something or drinking something, you should give yourself the time to, to enjoy it and to give it some attention if you've bothered to select something to put into your body. And this points us back to questions that are about how people understand the role of food in their lives in the first place. But it is uh, certainly also true that there are some indications that it's better for your digestion, that you enjoy food and drink more calmly and allow yourself to consume it without, uh, with, with attention, I guess would be the best way of saying it. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, if I'm now heading into lunchtime, what are the lunchtime rules? Well, so here's where we start getting into even more complicated territory if we're looking back a little bit historically, because people will, I'm sure you constantly get this question. I know I get it all the time. Do Italians think lunch is the most important meal of the day? And the short answer is not anymore. 
mm. I would say. Um, but the longer, more nuanced answer is they do still in their minds appreciate it in that way. In practice, because Italy is a G8 economy with people who mostly work in large urban environments and don't get to go home for lunch anymore or take uh, substantial amounts of time away from their desk during uh, the regular working hours, they're not going to have a big lunch. That being said, lunch still kind of occupies an outsized space in the cultural imagination. Yeah, it's it's sort of a sacred moment where you're not sitting at your desk and eating while you're looking at your screen. You are exiting your place of work. And it's unlikely, especially with the contracts that have been passed out in the past decade or right. so, that you have even more than an hour for lunch. And so, you know, uh, banish the idea that all Italian workers are sitting over three bottles of wine and a five-hour lunch. That's uh, a very small segment of the population, mainly in the political sector um, (laughs) and the business sector, where those sort of boozy power lunches still do take place. So that's a minority. Um, But yeah, you do, you go with your colleagues and you sit and enjoy something, whether it is a cafeteria meal at one of the cafes or bars, um, or if it's a substantial sandwich or pizza by the slice, or the growing number of sort of health food driven salad places. You're sitting down, you're having a beverage, not always alcoholic, and you are savoring what you have. What you are not doing afterwards is drinking a cappuccino. (laughs) Right, exactly. So I think, yeah, I think once again, as uh, we were saying with the idea even of a snack, it's bringing attention and time, whatever you are able to give to that moment of the day and to the consumption of the food and drink with it. I will say that although, again, right now it's less likely that you'll see this, it's still a lot more common and not Uh, as socially complicated to have an alcoholic drink with your lunch. It would not be unusual to order some wine, not have a lot of it. And in fact, often I would say, you know, there's even in a a more relaxed situation, not on your uh, during your workday, people are still not going to be knocking back you know, multiple glasses or bottles of wine, uh, unless it's a particularly celebratory lunch. But a small glass of wine or a small beer with lunch, perfectly typical, feels exactly the same to them as ordering a soda or an iced tea or something that you are choosing for the taste. This, you know, I don't want to be a downer for our listeners under the age of 35, but when you are 35 and older, if you do have a, a drink at lunch, you go, you have to go to sleep. <laughs> right. So, right to bed. <laughs> I and there are still people who run on a, a more traditional schedule where they take more time for lunch. However, those people are going to also almost certainly be working a longer day overall. Mm-hmm. So you'll have I certainly, for example, in the university context, know lots of people because they have more flexible schedules or because they don't have to be in any one place at a given time will take a longer lunch, maybe have a glass of wine, maybe even still have a short nap. Mm, yes. Um not to, you know, they're not tucking themselves into bed with a sleep cap right there. Um 
Um, they they may just uh, sit down on the couch and close their eyes. Um, but, I'm not asleep. I'm just closing my eyes. Right. Exactly. I know that trick. Exactly. Um, uh, but with the expectation that they're going to then go back to wherever they work, their office, the library, et cetera, and uh, work through until 6, 7, even 8 p.m., mm-hmm. especially in longer sunlight days. Yeah. So, and especially in, yeah. in the south. Right. Yeah. Um, or a siesta is, mm-hmm. you know, especially in villages and small cities where people can go home because there isn't crazy traffic like there is in the, the bigger uh, metropolis. They'll go home. They'll take that long long lunch and a nap, and then go head back to work for that longer, longer day. Exactly. So now you have the afternoon. And as most people are probably aware, Italians tend to eat on the later side. So their dinner is going to be after the end, not just of the work day, but also after all other work or errands are done, almost without exception. Most mm-hmm. people do not come home and eat immediately and then do other things. Again, lots of exceptions here. People adjust their lives to the realities of what work is available and where they have support or lack thereof. But on the whole, they're not going to come home, throw down their bag and immediately get dinner started. And that means that you may have a fairly long stretch between your lunch and dinner. And again, snacking becomes a little bit tricky here because the perception is that adults don't really have snacks. Enter aperitivo. Right. (laughs) Exactly. So uh, aperitivo, which is a subject that we've really dug into maybe on every single episode. It does seem to come up all the (laughs) time. At some point. Yeah. um, Is that single beverage and small snacks, not anything resembling a meal, little light bites that you'll have before dinner, and generally not at the place that you're consuming dinner. Right. So you might go to a, you might have craft beer even. Mm-hmm. You might not be at an aperitivo associated place at all, but at a pub or at a wine bar that, uh, you know, pours whole bottles or whatever. Like there are lots of options for your uh, pre-prandium beverage, mm-hmm. but pre-prandial, pre-prandial, I don't know, whatever. <laughs> yeah, you got it. <laughs> whatever. So... What is not done is getting trizashed at aperitivo. Right. This yeah. is not where you order a pitcher ahead <laughs> and yeah. then just drink and drink until dinner time. Mm-hmm. It's a single beverage, low ABV generally. Um, so think of spritz, a glass of Prosecco or a glass of wine, little bites, and then a pause before before dinner. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I still really kind of think about where I am and who I'm with when it comes to aperitivo because if you're in, you know, if we're in Rome together and we're going to a place that really prides itself on its cocktail culture, then I might, or its program, I should say, I I'm am inclined to have something like a Negroni, a classic Italian cocktail. But you will sometimes still get eyes for that, even at aperitivo, even on a Friday night, for example, right? You'll say, okay, we're kicking off a fun evening with friends. I'm going to have a nice drink. And they'll say, oh, someone's starting strong, you know? Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's a signal that you really like alcohol more than everyone else at the table. Because (laughs) Negroni, although it's synonymous with Italy, is not something that's famous because Italians celebrated it. 
it's famous because it was uh, embraced by like booze travelers during right. Prohibition. Yeah. Um, and it was it was something that was a bit shocking in its time uh, because gin was seen as extremely unhealthy. And the so-called Count uh, Negroni was a raging alcoholic and wanted something <laughs> that would get, you know, get the party, started. get the party yeah. started. Um, and yeah. so in a way. There's this irony that the most, perhaps the most famous, now second most famous after Spritz Italian cocktail actually uh, isn't isn't a fully accepted part of the aperitivo culture. Because aperitivo is meant to get you hungry, not get you buzzed. Right. It's supposed to whet your appetite, not uh, make you tipsy. Right, exactly. So you, right, the, you know, if we're going for a rule here, like you said, it should be something like a spritz because a spritz is designed to keep the alcohol level down, keep the acid component high, that nice little uh, effervescence, getting everything, getting all the juices flowing, and then accompanied by, right, something like in the form of a tapa because people, for some reason, know the Spanish version <laughs> of that more than an Italian one. And uh, or uh, you'll get a small bowl of chips or nuts, olives, uh, just a little something to tide you over before you sit down to your meal. Your dinner at that point, like you said, is going to be somewhere else for sure. People do not continue from their pre-dinner drink into dinner at the same place. And in fact, it is extremely rare, even now, even newer places, to have a a clear bar area Mm. in a restaurant. A restaurant is a place where you sit down for a meal and drinks are served at the table with your food. A place where you have aperitivo or an after-dinner drink has a bar set up and will have some small tables or other possibilities for gathering with larger groups. But again, really clear kind of delineation between those two kinds of spaces as well as what they serve. Mm. And the spritz's identity as an aperitif which is consumed before you eat, means that traditionally it's not something you drink with your meal. Now, this is something that you see a lot of visitors to Italy doing, ordering Mm -hmm. a spritz or or Negroni or whatever with their pasta, and it's just not a done thing. Absolutely. And I would would expand that and say the idea of drinking really anything besides beer or wine with dinner, and really besides wine with dinner, is mostly also against the rules, you know, capital R, if we're really Mm. following them. In fact. And, you know, there have been many, many, many craft brewers in Italy that have attempted to market their sophisticated, barrel-aged beers as accompaniments to food. And it's only really been successful in, like, the barley wine category in which that high alcohol, often high residual sugar beer is served with desserts or chocolate. Um, Instead... You know, there are a lot of examples of craft beer pubs that are doing pub food, burgers, sandwiches, salads, things like that, uh, where beer is the only choice. Right. right? Yeah. You, you go to the craft beer pub, you drink the beer, there's food there because that's expected. Um, but there's, you know, that's a, a very beer themed Right, right, exactly. Yeah, it's sort of carving out a, a whole other space as uh, as a result of the fact that that culture just didn't really exist at all. Yeah. I read the dumbest thing I've ever read. Wow, that's saying something. I can't Some, Someone wrote that only beer is acceptable to pair with pizza. And I was like, that is... It's so ignorant. <laughs> like, what on earth? <laughs> I mean, it's it's also not even correct, even if we go back to the kind of most cliche generalizations. 
Italians, if they're going to tell you a rule about that, they would always say either beer or Coca-Cola is yeah. allowed with pizza. Totally. And um, on top of that, as you point out, even within that, certainly wines like Lambrusco mm. were always imagined to be a natural accompaniment yeah. to something like pizza. Also because we know pizza is a really broad category. Huge. So it's one thing to say you're sitting down to a Neapolitan-style individual pizza and it's another thing to say pizza, you know, writ yeah. large. And so. actually, you know, the wines of the the crisp mineral white wines of Campania, or even the more uh, aromatic ones, are great combos with pizza. Oh, absolutely. So and good. Especially some Fiori and Alicia on the pizza mm. is perfect. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Love yeah. that. What you shouldn't do. <laughs> um, no, actually, there's no rule here. You should drink whatever you want with pizza. And in fact, there's a, you know, this is a huge exception, but Dry in Milan started... I don't know if they started it, but they definitely made the cocktail and pizza combo famous. So there's another exception to the cocktail rule. Well, I think there's, besides just new trends, pizza and other non, less structured foods Mm. and meals um, give room for where there are gray areas and where Italians have always said, you know, oh, here's the place where we can uh, innovate a little bit and move around. If you're sitting down to a dinner, then ideally have already enjoyed whatever aperitif you would like to have. And now you're going to almost certainly order some wine. Wine is the accompaniment of choice. And when you're having dinner, even if it's a very casual one, it will almost without exception be a multi-course meal. And that's another rule that actually I think is one that is one of the most important ones to know because if you want to participate in hospitality in Italy, it's very important that you have a coursed out meal. Even if it's quite casual Mm. uh, among friends, it would be rare indeed to have one dish served at dinner. At, yeah. at the very least, you would have a primo or a secondo and then a contorno of some kind. And you will almost always be given something for dessert, even if it's just a, a, a mandarino, a little, mm. a little piece of fruit, some nuts, uh, a, a piece of cheese, something to kind of clearly punctuate the end of the meal. That's right. And it's no longer often physically possible to eat all five courses, antipasto, primo, secondo, contorno, dolce. So you don't have to feel obligated to get every course, every meal. What you, this isn't necessarily a rule. It's just, you know, common courtesy. Uh, Go out for, if you're you're occupying space in a trattoria restaurant, uh, you should get multiple courses. You don't have to get all five. Right. But you should be making they shouldn't be losing money on you. Right. right. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. You should absolutely. you should know that the structure the economic structure of that business relies on you having at least two, if not three courses minimum. And the only rule in that sort of category is you can't just mix and match your courses. You can't say, I want my tiramisu and then bring me my cacio e pepe no. and then I'll have my oxtail. No, the order is important and it is I think something that we've talked about in a lot of other contexts, because it also has to do with the way people think about health and their uh, understanding of how progression is a form in itself of hospitality and how it affects the body and the mind once again. But it is 
uh, not something that should be treated lightly. You mm. what what is offered as a starter is there to start, mm-hmm. and from there you have to work together with your server also to make sure that the table has a timely progression together. If one person wants to order a first and a second, and then also a contorno, a vegetable course, and a dessert, and the other person doesn't, and you're two top together, it's up to you to coordinate in some way because the uh, idea of just going willy-nilly is really not acceptable. Yeah, and it is important that when there is food in front of one person, there is also food in front of the other person. Because a lot of this dining is convivial and companionship based and it's seen as somewhat of a faux pas to allow a a single diner at the table to not have at least a plate in front of them. Yeah, absolutely. And that brings us to another rule about structure, which is that when your food comes, you eat it immediately. So this can be... Oh, yeah, that's in, a good one. Yeah, this this can be... After a five-minute photo shoot for the gram. Right, of course. Well, once it's been on... Well, <laughs> only once it has been grammed may it be consumed. But the the food, when it is served hot, should be consumed by that person. Obviously, this can get complicated in practice because, you know, if you're in a place where um, service isn't as smooth as it ought to be, you may have a situation where some plates are getting dropped, some people have food, some people don't. And so then you have a contradiction between the two rules we've just given. But in the ideal scenario, everyone gets their food at the same time. Everybody always has a dish when a dish is coming and everyone eats as it is placed before them so that it is consumed at the temperature that it is meant to be consumed at. Definitely. So how do you reach those conclusions about what to order. If you're in a city like Rome or Venice or Naples, where there is often a mixture of meat and fish and cheese, how do you... You just get one of everything or what? (laughs) No, absolutely (laughs) not. Of course not, Katie. This episode is called Rules. (laughs) When it comes to deciding what to eat at that point, so we started with breakfast with the idea of, yes, of course, there are other options, but what most people are getting are coffee and some kind of pastry. Well, now we're going to be looking at options for lunch and dinner that are, of course, much more diverse and complicated, but that should sort of fall into clear categories. If we're eating meat, we're eating meat tonight. We don't start with fish and then go to meat unless we're having some kind of really elaborate meal where there is a huge multi-course progression from a an entire kind of suite of fish dishes into meat well, dishes. That, it's, okay, so happen. big yeah. exception, Albert yeah. says a weddings. Right. Everyone wants to show off. They got money. Yeah. So they yeah. do the pasta with fish, the pasta with meat, the yeah. fish course, the meat course. Right. And then everyone has to go immediately to the hospital. Right, right. exactly. So they've had right, 35 courses and something akin to the amount of calories that they consumed up in, in their entire lives till that point. Right? Yeah. So um, get get an invite to an Albert says a wedding if you can. It's pretty pretty dope. It's epic. Um, Just make sure you're insured. (laughs) So uh, if you're having fish, you're having fish. And that means that whatever you decide, if you're doing antipasti and then a secondo or a primo and then a contorno, it's all going to follow in that uh, vein. 
And uh, if it's meat, then that's fine. But similarly, you're sticking with it. And frankly, once again, there is an expectation that the table is going to do that, not just the individual, even if the restaurant offers all of the above. It's either everyone is having fish tonight or everyone's having meat tonight. Again, in practice, of course, you know, especially in a big city like Rome, where you have restaurants that do all kinds of things, you can kind of get whatever you want and enjoy in a little bit more flexible of a context. But most of the time, it's going to be that way. And it's also probably reflective of what the restaurant or the whatever establishment you're in is known for, which I think kind of brings us to an even bigger rule, which is eat what you're supposed to eat at the place, right? Yeah. Don't let your appetite guide your order because it might be wrong. Right. (laughs) So you go, you know, this is my, the line that I always give to people, which is you don't order salmon at a steakhouse, right? Right. And that's a little bit less transparent, obviously, for a Mm. foreigner in Italy, because uh, we're not often talking about restaurants that are coding themselves quite so clearly. But if the restaurant is known for something, whatever it might be, it could be a kind of, it could be a category of food or it could be a preparation, then you're using that to be the kind of cornerstone mm. of the theme for your evening. Yeah. If a place's specialty is the intestines of milk fed veal, you may not, as a vegetarian, want to go and just willy-nilly choose all the vegetarian things because they're maybe not focusing on anything except organ meats. Right, exactly. As an example. As an example. <laughs> As an example. Um, there's an exception to that, but uh, Piatto Romano, there's bomb vegetables. You mm. can eat fully vegan there and then also have all the guts that you want. <laughs> so at what point in the meal do you ask your server to bring you a bowl of of parmigiano reggiano to sprinkle on top of your spaghetti with clams. So now we get into the the real details here and uh, things start to get a little bit more complicated. One way of knowing what to eat or not eat or what the rules might be is just to understand that it is almost certainly served the way you are meant to eat it. Yes. If they wanted cheese on it, they'd bring you cheese. Cheese would either already be on it, which is often the case, or it will be brought to the table, as would any other further condiment that's appropriate. Sometimes a drizzle of olive oil is appropriate. If you're in Florence, for example, eating a traditional bread soup, you will get a a bottle of good olive oil, and the expectation is that you drizzle it on top in order to finish that dish. Um, If you are in the South, there are several pasta dishes that will come with toasted breadcrumb to give texture at the end and also possibly hot chili. All of that will be brought with the dish. If it's not brought with the dish, they don't want you to have it. Yeah. And that sort of breaks open the myth that you don't combine fish or seafood and cheese. You absolutely do. But generally, the name of the dish tells you there's cheese coming with the seafood. Like... Uh, Pasta with cozze pecorino, with uh, pasta with mussels and pecorino, or fiori di zucca e alici, uh, stuffed zucchini flowers um, with inside uh, salted anchovies and mozzarella. There are many, 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 many examples of uh, cheese being combined with fish. It's usually mozzarella uh, with salted anchovies or pecorino with a huge range of seafood. But Parmigiano Reggiano will not be delivered to your table 
Probably even if you ask, honestly. Yeah. Well, I would also say that... Um, if you, if you yeah. have certain dishes. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And... I think uh, the way that Padmigiano can be help, a helpful guide there is that the reason it, or is, is if you understand the reason why that particular cheese isn't brought along with most dishes, fish or otherwise, for that matter, you'll better understand the kind of general guiding principle there, which is that Parmigiano is prized and a very specific and intense flavor. Mm. So it's not appropriate to be tossing it on top of just about anything. It needs to be there when it is asked for and uh, or when the dish asks for it. I mean, not you, obviously, mm. <laughs> and uh, and not if it isn't. And you'll get that, you know, in Rome, if you get an arrabbiata, you don't put anything on it for the same reasons because you don't want competing flavors. Mm. Yeah. There's also that rule of not putting black pepper and uh, chili pepper together. Right. Which, and that's yeah. one of the reasons that, well, one of the many, many reasons you don't find salt and pepper shakers on uh, on tables uh, across Italy generally, because you're not in charge of the seasoning. The kitchen is in charge of the seasoning. Exactly. Yeah. Now, what about some of your uh, favorite other rules for specific dishes? Anything that comes to mind besides, I feel like fish and cheese comes up all the time with... Italian Americans, mm-hmm. and so that's a big one. But there are some other ones when you're in Italy. About- I mean, a lot of people want to have salad first, and then ignore the fact that it is listed last on the menu because it's the last savory course. I think that that one is like a, a little bit easier of a rule to get broken for you, mostly because servers are just so exasperated. <laughs> right. um, oh, two things that come up a lot is uh, olive oil and balsamic Mm -hmm. with bread or even just olive oil with bread. Bread is served um, to absorb the sauce left over on your plate. And when bread is doused in olive oil, that is for an olive oil tasting. Right. Not as like a little dippers at the beginning of your meal. Um, Almost every place will bring, they have like the little, uh, those little, whatever they're called, Crusettes, whatever the, those, I can't. My the, brain, help! The, ow, the, ow, my brain. <laughs> don't, don't be afraid. It's okay. So it's containers of olive oil, of balsamic, uh-huh. of all of all uh, vinegars and olive uh-huh. oil that are just like delivered to the tables of foreigners preemptively. Like the the drizzling of balsamic vinegar, really on anything, including salad, is pretty unusual in, uh, in, from a traditional standpoint in Italy. So absolutely, yeah, it's a super regional ingredient. Oh, the the combination of vinegar and mozzarella. Oh, is, yeah. Uh, yeah, no good. Yeah, like fresh, fresh mozzarella is already perfect. Right. Already putting olive oil on it. Some places will do that. I think that... Taste it first. Yeah, yeah. If um, you think it needs more fat, I guess. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, um, yeah, mostly uh, a, a good fresh mozzarella should really not have anything at all on mm. top of it. You may see a small sprinkle of salt and a drizzle of olive oil. You definitely would never see a balsamic vinegar added to that in any context, really, except for when they have created a dish for non-Italians. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Other funny, any for the uh, other funny things. Mayonnaise is for zero sandwiches. Right. And um, 100% of uh, small bowls of ketchup when you're served 
oil shrimp. Oh God, yeah, salsa that's rosa. a very yeah. You can have right salsa rosa. Um, I mean, usually it's just served in a bottle. You don't even have to mix it yourself. It's just like the salsa rosa squirty bottle, already ready to be consumed in yeah. large uncouth amounts. Yeah, <laughs> Russian dressing minus relish. It's yeah. I would say um, all of those kinds of condiments are basically reserved for very specific and ultimately pretty rare occasions, mm-hmm. and. Yeah, even um, if you see fried potatoes in any form, including the form that we know them in as French fries, a lot of times they would not actually bring any condiment for that. Now you'll get ketchup most of the time and also mayonnaise mm-hmm. often. But uh, even that would be, you know, that's kind of a, a crapshoot if uh, the place is perceiving them in that way mm-hmm. based on, again, a kind of international influence. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, if you order a panino to order, if you want two cheeses, no. If you want two lunch meats, no. Right. If you want tomato on it, maybe, but probably not. But really only if it's mozzarella. Yeah. Uh, if you want mustard on it, no. No. No, just no. <laughs> just no. If you want a sandwich cut into three slices instead of two, no. <laughs> God, if you want anything on your porchetta sandwich, no. No. If you want cheese on your bologna sandwich, no. If you want, if you want like, let me think. Well, you know, what you're pointing to, Katie, is again, much like the question of when cheese should be sprinkled on your pasta, it's always about enjoying the flavors mm. of the ingredients that are meant to be highlighted. So, yeah, you're not going to put prosciutto and mortadella on a sandwich together because that's crazy. It's too much. How could you even taste it's the difference? It's too good. Yeah. <laughs> it's too much delicious. Well, I mean, panino con mortazza in, in uh, Rome, which is very typical, even though it's sort of not typical in, in terms of the kind of bread and the meat that it serves. Yeah, I mean, like pizza con mortazza is a mm. mid to late 20th century perfect innovation. It's just <laughs> Collision of beautiful salty flavors um yeah it's uh imagine my confusion as a a new jersey native arriving in italy (laughs) and only finding one thin slice of (laughs) mortazza on my well we don't call it um like a sandwich we call it a pizza right uh because the bread is pizza bianca but like i'm like where's where the where's the mayo yeah. Where's the mustard? No, nope. I'm like, no. Absolutely not. Stop humiliating yourself and get out of here. <laughs> get out. <laughs> and we mean the country. <laughs> we do mean get on a plane and get out for good. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the idea of having rules like this are is also impenetrable to Americans because they have a feeling that you're supposed to have the diner, the person consuming, be guiding the dining experience. But the Italian side of it is the person serving or preparing is supposed to be guiding the dining experience. And I don't want to overestimate this, but there is something too that you're 
trust entrusting yourself to someone who has some expertise mm. and you know the word expertise maybe feels a little heavy-handed but um certainly they know what they have and why they want to give it to you that way and there's the attachment to tradition there comes not just from a kind of provincialism of not being willing to give up something that was done and and not or to not question it but rather to say this was done because this is how you appreciate the things that we have and we mm. want you to appreciate them. Yes, absolutely. So if you haven't been taking notes, that's okay. Because <laughs> if you break any of the rules, you'll know. <laughs> once, once more, as we began, so we will conclude. If you break the rules, they will look at you and, say, and tell you that you have done something terrible. But then they'll probably laugh and say, oh, well, this is what you will now have to experience. The punishment is yours and yours alone. They shout, this is how you learn. <laughs> my, my most vivid rule-breaking experience came very early upon my arrival. I went to the market with with, uh, with wet hair. Oof. I had oh, taken wow. a shower. Oh, I went God. outside. First of all, I went outside with wet hair. Then I went this to the market. Night. This is a nightmare <laughs> already. And yeah. so many people intervened. Right. Yeah. Just so trying many to people. help this poor child. Non, fr- from the non si fa. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Signorina, non si fa. Just so you no, know. Così non yeah. si fa. I actually I don't know if they were talking about my flip flops or my uh, wet hair. What a night! Yeah, two thousand three was a really challenging <laughs> year a, what for a walk, me. What a walk you had yeah, in front of me. It was rough, um, but that is how I learned. Right. Well, and that's you know we uh, we have conversations like this with other people who have lived here for a long time or who come back and forth. You know, there are decisions to be made, but it's I I talk about this with my students a lot. Um, one thing that actually makes me happy still, even though it is uh, something challenging, is that while, by, especially now, you know, we're in 2022, obviously not only do I know all the rules and know how to break them or live by them if I choose to, and on top of everything else, there's, you know, a lot of flexibility has been built into any place you visit because of the fact that we have greater cultural diversity and we have a lot more communication across the board and more uh, exposure to things with Internet and social media. Um, I could live a very American lifestyle in Rome or elsewhere in Italy. But I change myself when I'm here. I have an Italian Mm, way of living and an Italian personality. And uh, that's by choice. It's It's not imposed upon me. I might have to push back against some of the things we're talking about here. But I make that choice because I like to feel part of something, a part of that community. And so when I eat here. I eat according to these rules most of the time. And I eat Italian things when Italians eat them uh, because I enjoy feeling connected to people through that. And that's kind of the whole reason why we're talking about any of this, right? Let's see. Va bene. Basta per oggi. No, I was just thinking of all the, all the rules I want to break. <laughs> well, let's go out and break some rules and let our listeners go back through this episode when they come visit Italy. And this way they can feel confident and comfortable when they want to and do a little rule breaking of their own when they're ready. Right on. Ciao. Arrivederci. 
We love our supporters. Thank you so much to our Giotti level patrons like Allison and Gina Ruggiero of Fiorella in Rochester and Gabe Del Virginia of New York City. We also want to thank Anthony Lombardo at She Wolf Detroit and Leah Ferrazzani at Semolina Pasta in Pasadena. 